Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno and I am Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostic and I'm Oregon Trail Generation. What the hell are you talking about? That's not a, that's not a <laughs> thing. That's a thing? <laughs> I'm so surprised you missed this whole period. It was very popular on BuzzFeed for a while because there was... So there's there was a period of time where we weren't sure where people born between like 75 and 80 fit because it they depending on which definition of the generations you were in you weren't too young to be Gen X and too old to be Gen Y or or millennials. Okay. And so um there were people who were doing like well it's a cusp thing so they're Xennials. I remember and, Xennials. Yes, that I remember. Yes. And then there were other takes on it. So it was the Oregon Trail generation, which means you were like in that age group that in like second, you know, first, second, third grade, you had a Commodore or an Apple II or whatever in the classroom. And it had the one thing on it, which was, which was the Oregon Trail Everybody generation. Died it had like King's Quest. Yeah. Everyone died of dysentery. <laughs> um, and so um, I have to say, being from Oregon originally, I did not realize that this was not just an Oregon thing. Uh, um, but the thought it was like, this country. is our local game that we've created. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I think I did. Uh, and, um, and by the way, there was a cheat code where if you, you got your like, um, general store purchases at the beginning where you bought all your supplies, if you typed in like nine nines in each one of the budget line items, you could have like unlimited everything. What? Maybe that was, an I think that's thing. right. That might've been an um, thing. <laughs> Why? can't we agree on the years of when a generation begins and ends? Why does it move? Why does it change over five years? Why are there like, why does it change from, okay, you're Gen X and the next one is going to be millennials too. Actually, there's this five-year gray area where they're called something else and we can't decide on what that gap year group is called. It's a really good question. I think like what I've been noticing is First of all, you have so many different people or organizations or scholars or whatever who are defining it differently. And so they all want to kind of claim their definition and then also claim their mantle. Like we're calling it Gen Y or we're calling it Echo Boomers or we're calling it whatever. And we've decided that the ages are these and we've picked it based on, you know, I've seen them do it where it's like kind of key cultural moments or it's key technological developments. And so like, uh, you know, a generation should end before the iPhone is launched because then the iPhone launches a new generation. And I, I mean, I have vague memories of yeah, that happening a, with it like- It becomes a new epic. The iPod. And, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think some of it's that. That actually And then I think sense. like, then, but then like there's a battle that happens for like 10 years over, are we going to keep these weird little interregnum generations or not? And in the end, it seems like, not is the answer. Like in the end, no survey maker really wants to have 
in generational increments of there's a 15 year one here and then a five year one here and then another 20 year one here. And like, they want it to be more standardized. Yeah. And so the argument also seems to be like 20 years or 22 years or whatever is the reasonable length of a generation. That and seems, that seems arbitrary too, but you know, it, that seems totally arbitrary, but at least I could get a standard range of years makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because at least then we all agree going forward when the next one will begin and end, and we can predict two, three generations in the future what what, what the hell we're talking about, right? Which would help. But a I lot. think there was a moment, yeah. But I think then you have this like moment with that group that I sit in, <laughs> where we were expressly told we weren't Gen X, but then what we were also it? expressly Oregon, told the Oregon Trail. The or that so there was a third one that was popular for a hot minute Tell in like more. the summer of 2009, <laughs> which was um, the Jordan Catalano generation. You stop it right now. <laughs> do you know who Jordan Catalano is? Of course of I do, because okay. I'm, I'm Gen X. I was, a, I was still watching linear TV when my so-called life was on. Of course I know. <laughs> Don't insult me. <laughs> if you're, yeah. So that we've yes. already covered quite a bit of ground here. <laughs> So by the logic you just laid out, where you mm -hmm. said they, they, the thought leaders who make this decision would say that the iPhone is a is a epoch marker, an epic marker. And then, yet it isn't. Like, it, it actually is not a break here. Yeah, but by that logic, <laughs> Jordan Catalano and my so-called life is, is, who is it, Claire Danes? Is a, is yes, a, Claire Danes. That yes, marks Jared a Leto generational? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's an okay show. Is what they run like 20, 20 episodes, right? Yeah, I think so. Like it was, it was not, it was not long running. It did not like that. It gets run in syndication kind of breaks the rules of syndication. Yeah. It, had, so, a, it yeah. had an impact, but I don't think it defines a generation. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. And, and also it was so kind of decidedly, well, I think part of why people liked that was that it felt like a show about the tail end of Gen X. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think the fight that was happening and the reason that this was like popular on Buzzfeed and that kind of thing was there was this little generation of young internet journalist types, you know, culture reporters and whatever bloggers who were too young to be Gen X and too old to be Gen Y who identified more as digital native, yes. but had the same kind of. I don't know, cultural cynicism or whatever of Gen Xers or identified more with that anyway, um, had more of the pop culture references of Gen X, but had the technology chops of Gen Y. And so they wanted to like carve out their own little space for a minute, but they've lost that. Like th there's no one, gen no, no credible demographer or a survey maker is surveying Xennials. Did you um, know I created my own line for this, which is the Sally Ride line that millennials do not know who Sally Ride is at all. No millennial. <laughs> if, if a person knows who it is, even if they are in the millennial age group, they're Gen X. That's wild. Yeah. We can do some research on this act. We should do research onto the, in this and see if people can identify who Sally Ride is in that age group. That's really, we should come up with a whole list of like a battery of these things and yeah. just see the sorting of like, do you, do you know what this thing is? So yes, no, we have been pulling headlines about millennials and nobody yes. has done this research that I've seen to demarcate cult, the idea of breaking it up by culture and, you know, something like my so-called life or Oregon trail are much more interesting than the way the media tends to split and define generations, especially the millennial generation. Um, would you agree? You're nodding, but <laughs> I, I would agree. I, I feel like what they kind of 
here's what I, I have started to think, and, and we, I think, have talked about this before, but I really think that every every generation we're talking about has an anchor point, and that is baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And so baby boomers as a generation are the first to be defined for the purposes of marketing and politics and culture and everything else. And so then we work forward in time after them, and we work backward in time before them, because we're not calling the silent generation the silent generation um, until unless. the seventies. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and we're unless not unless there's unless um, there the silent generation is actually a response to the baby boom generation. The the name the silent generation. Yeah, well, and it was. It, I mean, I believe the silent generation is a reference to Nixon talking about the silent majority, mm-hmm. which were the middle aged people in nineteen seventy two, not the. 20 to, you know, to 20 somethings in 1972. So that's, that gets invented sort of after the fact. And they're kind of defined by too young to have served in the second world war and too old to be protesting the Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. Like that's more or less what you're talking about is the the big gap there. And then we don't get the greatest generation handle until like Tom Brokaw writes his book in the eighties or something Mm -hmm. early nineties. So like that generation had not been given a name either per se. So I think it's all a little bit of a, of a retcon, (laughs) you know, like you, you start with baby boomers and then everything emanates out from that. Um, So that I think is, is, as part of how that then gets defined. And so like they get cultural markers, right? They get the end of the second world war through basically the start of the Vietnam war. And that's their, that's their birth years. Um, and so you'd think like, well, do we want to have these other kind of big global, um, inflection points as the definitions, but that would then leave you with like weird years where nothing happened. And so there's what the, the people born in those years don't belong to a generation, I guess. Um, <laughs> and so, which is like back to Oregon trail generation, I guess, but like, you know, what, what was really happening between like 75 and 80, not much. Gerald Ford was tripping on things like, you know, Saturday night live. Launched, because, I guess, like, because of the weirdness of, pinning down the exact years or the exact dates of, of open and close of a generation, it lets mm-hmm. media uh, storytelling sort of define the generation in, in these overarching terms versus having a real clear definition. So essentially what the New York Post wants to say millennials are, for example, is what readers of the New York Post will think millennials are. They, they won't think about the age group they think of the mm-hmm. the description through headlines of this large mass of people. And I want to totally. let you know, uh, as, as Googling New York Post and millennials, it is largely not flattering uh, as a portrait. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that's right. And I also think like, you know, as we've been doing this, where did, where did any of these names come from? It's like, it, it's really complicated, which is why I, I think um, we should just settle in now and get used to each other, Adam, because we're going to be at this <laughs> for a minute or two. <laughs> um, because, I mean, I think we talked about this, but like, I think the New York Post has such a 
pejorative <laughs> position on millennials in part because of that book that came out in like, and now I've forgotten when it came out, like 2002 or something that was like the rising democratic majority or the emerging democratic majority, which is this pollster book about how like all young people were just going to be inexorably more liberal than everybody else and browner than everybody else. And, um, and, you know, we would never be able to retrieve them for the conservative cause. And so let's just for want of a better word, shit on them um, in the pages of the post because it's fun. And like, <laughs> you know, it's it's an it's a long-term own the libs as a generation strategy. And um, and it's easy clickbait. And you know, everybody loves to go through at least some phase of get off my lawn and get these kids today and whatever. Um, but that that I think is at least part of the reason. I've pulled up headlines from going back only to 2021. More and more millennials are saying that having children sounds like a trap. Are millennials spoiled babies? Do millennials stink? Millennials have it too easy. Millennials are the absolute cheapest. Now, 5% strip. They are ruining Halloween. The skin generation. Millennials. 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 Blame it on the millennials. I'm just blown away by the recent ones and, and your point about the lib baiting in 2022, in July, George Will wrote this article about, in the Washington Post, wrote an op-ed, how millennials became aggressively illiberal, censorious young adults. And his, mm. his article is all about the shift, you know, moving from this idea of techno cheerleaders um, through the redefinition, you know, in, in his estimation of the, as the dumbest generation, which was another book that was written. He's painting them into another portrait, you know, and that's only from this summer, but, but I think, and that's the Washington post doing their best to be like, see, we're, we're impartial. We, we publish <laughs> claptrap like this. Um, <laughs> it's interesting to see between the New York post and conservative writers and thinkers, they are always pinging back to like this group of people can't be relied on. You know, this group mm -hmm. of people, if you are a baby boomer or conservative, they are, they're problematic. You can't trust them. You can't count on them to have to support your causes and you have to figure out how to work around them. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in the realm of, well, I feel like this has probably kind of happened in marketing in general, but I feel like politics in particular over the last decade or so. And, and maybe some of this is like the rise of data journalism and Nate Silver and whatever, but the need to predict outcomes, like to know what's going to happen before it happens has become like this really weird <laughs> component of our public discourse. And so, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety about somebody that might go the other way and you're not really sure why, and they're not fitting previous patterns of like, okay, baby boomers were all burning their bras and their draft cards and, you know, whatever. And then they sold out and did a bunch of blow and then they had kids and then, and then yeah. became Republicans and greed yeah. is good. Right. <laughs> That's the arc of the, of the moral universe for baby boomers. And now they're like sliding into depths of despair. And so cool. Great story. That seems to be the thing that everyone's still waiting on millennials to do is to like suddenly make the big swing to conservatism because they have a mortgage and three kids. I mean, to be honest, that is happening because that happens, right? People do, some people do become more conservative as they 
take on greater responsibilities and just age in general and become more like their parents. And that's just natural, but like, it's not happening in this big sea change kind of a way. And, um, and so I think that makes people like, um, good old George will anxious, but also he doesn't want them to like turn too hard. Right. Like he wants them to turn in a nice, nice, comfortable curve. Yeah. Nobody's that's nobody's predictable. That's, that's predictable. Yeah. 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 And, and so if I try to understand millennials just from headlines, that's, that's mm. the audit I was trying to do. It's like, okay, well, let's yeah. say I don't know anything about them and I just landed from Mars and someone says millennials. And I'm like, are you sure you don't mean the Oregon trail generation, bro? Because I'm pretty sure that's what you're, <laughs> you're talking about. They say, no, no millennials. It's another age group that's shifting uh, years based on when we want to talk about, but let's say I want to know about, I want to understand that. And I, so I go to the news, you know, I, mm-hmm. I start looking at this. I get such a collection of weirdness. I mean, mm. if I don't go, I only let myself go back into 2020. I think there might be some that I have for as examples, but like the avocado toast thing from 2016, 2017 is a, that mm-hmm. is an extremely strange descriptive phrase that got grouped with an entire generation. Mm-hmm. And it also, that also speaks to a new political talking points approach that was like, mm-hmm. what is something weird and memorable that I can just pin on 70 million people? Avocado toast. Like, that that shouldn't have stuck or meant anything, but I still see millennials rebutting that today proactively. Like, oh, and you think yes. it's all about Africa? It's like, no. See, you're you're losing the argument because you're in the argument. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But this is this is also like a through line because I feel like in the what like the the ni- early nineties maybe it was or late eighties it was the limousine liberals and then it was the mm-hmm. latte sipping liberals and yes. now it's the avocado toast eating millennials but yes. it's shifted away from being like you're out of touch to you are out of touch and all the things you complain about are wrong in the world are your fault because you're spending your money on this and not on something else hundred and so it's not just the rich people anymore, right? Like the limousine liberals have the money to spend on the limousine, (laughs) but the millennials are complaining they can't afford a house. They can't afford to move out of their parents' basement. And it's because they're spending all their money on this out of touch dish, (laughs) you know, avocado toast, which is just, uh, yeah. (laughs) So first of all, I'm just going to rep for avocado toast for a minute. It's delicious. It's really good. And sometimes it's overpriced. Sometimes it's overpriced. I don't eat it every day, but don't. I'm also not a millennial. And I, I don't want to talk about <laughs> avocado toast. I can't, I can't, I haven't had breakfast yet and I can't do it. Oh, um, no. So thinking about that framing that we're, we're trying to pin the problems of this generation on themselves. Like God, God forbid the system failed them. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. It's that they're buying expensive coffees and avocado toast or, you know, overspending and they're not following the example we set in the 80s as, as boomers mm-hmm. and, and even Gen Xers. I was pleased to have something to point and laugh at um, with avocado <laughs> toast. But if I'm looking at uh, headlines from 2021, and again, this is the New York Post. I promise my research span uh, more broadly than the, than the uh, New York Post. April 14th, 2021, there's this headline written by Hannah Frischberg. Millennials can finally afford homeownership, but not full stop. That feels like, oh, that's optimistic. 
Millennials can finally afford home ownership, comma, causing a shortage. <laughs> so even in the case where it's like, hey, here's some good news on the horizon, millennials being able to afford home ownership is good news for the economy. Mm-hmm. It is good news for boomers who have been sitting on homes and waiting to cash out. Like this is positive. And this took 10 years from the recession for people to build the wealth that they need to do this. Mm-hmm causing a shortage. Yes, it's good, but they are screwing it up. Those damn millennials, here they go again. Mm-hmm. And then I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about the article that is exactly uh, the 22nd, eight days later, written by Alison Hope in the New York Post, same pub. Millennials are moving back into awkward team rooms in record numbers. So it is both the same publication I'm looking to see if it's the same section. They're two different sections, real estate and living. In one article, it's saying, yes, they can find, they're finally building the wealth that we need them to build for the economy to move forward. And it's screwing us and the readers of the post, you know, primarily. And then in the other article, it's like, oh, they're failures. They're all moving back into their, their rooms. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the, the trope about like, um, I think that this may have been something I saw in, in the UK more, but like the Daily Mail tells you that like coffee causes cancer on on Monday and on Friday they tell you that coffee cures cancer. Yeah. And like, well, which one is? It? <laughs> I just believe it's both, and so I drink coffee because I figure it'll cause and just and equilibrium. Cure. Yeah, just, yeah. It'll balance out. <laughs> Every day I'm causing and curing cancer. If you're trying to learn about millennials and you are, and that's your source, you Google that, and you found both those articles and. What's your takeaway supposed to be? I mean, my immediate takeaway from this is like millennials are a pain in the ass for boomers. I bet you if we went back even 2018, we would find articles, not not in the New York Post, somewhere else, where it's millennials blaming boomers for the shortage of affordable housing because they're sitting on those houses yes. that they, you know, two of them live in and they're, you know, 2,000 square feet <laughs> and um, and they're not going anywhere. And so there are, there's no, no houses to buy. Yeah. Of course, the real problem here is possibly that like we're not building enough new housing and we're not building enough housing density. I don't know, maybe it's not either of their fault right. <laughs> in that sort of strictest commercial sense, but it's, it's very like, no, 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 it's not our fault. It's your fault. Um, and it also like comes across as like, and another thing, journalists, my neighbor down the street is annoyed because her son moved back in because he lost his job or something like that. And now she's annoyed because he still doesn't pick up after himself. So I'm going to write a thousand words about that and feels like, yeah. And another thing. Well, it, grievance. Yes. A specific kind of grievance. Let's bitch about our kids' grievance. Yes. The point of view of a lot of these articles is, and I didn't find all articles that are just millennials are bad, but mm-hmm. a lot of the articles that are trying to make these millennials claims do seem to be written from this per point of view of, man, my kid is such a deadbeat. My kid is like mm-hmm. a, a, an albatross. Isn't yours? They're moving back into their teenage room. I was going to turn that into a, a home office. Or, or, you know, yeah. a, gym, a fitness room or whatever. Right. Yes. Finally get the sewing room of my dreams. Yes. And then, you know, you keep looking. So I, I got on this track about home ownership. Mm. And I know personally that it's, they can't buy homes because of all the avocado toast that they Sure. Eat. Yes. But if I look at the Hill, 
And if I look at the LA Times, September of 2022, there's these articles about millennials can't afford to pay rent in these, this set of California cities. So that is local fear-mongering about a mm -hmm. huge group of people that can't afford to pay rent. And the same article is rewritten in The Hill, five cities where millennials struggle to rent a one-bedroom. So these articles mm -hmm. are about a year after the article I shared about uh, from the post that said they can't afford homes, but they're killing supply, mm -hmm. which is true. These things, but all these stories can't be overbuying and not able to rent a one bedroom. And the Hill is talking about five cities across the U.S. What is the overarching narrative? I know there isn't an editor for all of media, although right. conspiracy theorists wish there was. Um, the Illuminati <laughs> is not pulling the strings on this. But what's the story we're trying to tell, or what's the story where, as a reader, if I read five different pubs, which I encourage people to do. Mm -hmm. What's the story I'm supposed to take away? I don't know what's up or down. The the takeaway just is like, well, they're they're it doesn't matter which view you want to take on it, somehow they're just screwing it up. And and the thing that's funny about those kind of rent affordability pieces, I, if I had to guess, what they're doing is looking at like the average rent of a one or two bedroom or whatever in those places, and then looking at like the average incomes of an age band of people and making some sort of calculation about, well, if you maxed out your um the amount, the percentage of your income that you spent on rent, then no, you wouldn't be able to afford it in these places. But then what we do is say it's the millennials fault, right? <laughs> like that's, it's, it's on them that they can't, there's something wrong with them that they can't afford these rents is yes. one take on it. The other version of it is there's something wrong with the rents that these people can't afford it. When neither of these things winds up being true, because in those most expensive cities, people spend more than a third of their income on rent. <laughs> Right. It's not the because traditional. You have to live somewhere. Yeah, it's not the traditional balance of that that twenty yeah. percent umbrella that we used to we used to preach, and that's not yeah. a realistic break anymore. No. So there's a few different there's a few different avenues to explore. So you know, going back to the the birth of the the myth of the millennial, mm -hmm. there is this idea that you know this this huge group they're going to have this huge economic power, and we're not seeing that now. I think when the writers mm -hmm. write these pieces and they use the word millennial, they are saying all 70 some odd million of these people should be the same. They should all be an avatar for this idea that we got 20 years ago about who they would be. And so everything is like when I, I was just saying, you know, it's the POV mm -hmm. of my son is an albatross or my kid is an albatross. It's like almost like millennials are one kid. They are America's baby boomers son or daughter who was a ne'er-do-well who's like mm -hmm. failing us and screwing up everything. You know, it's the, the gosh, they're, they're at it again. I, they just crashed their car and now I got to go to the shop and bail them out. That's kind of the tone of the pieces, even though the pieces are written by Gen Z in yes. some cases. Well, and like the young, the younger sibling is like, can you believe my older mm -hmm. brother? What a jerk. Oh yes. I mean, that, that is what is so funny watching the narrative shift as millennials go from like heading off to college, graduating from college, getting to that place where like, oh, maybe this isn't a job anymore. It's a career. Oh, you know, I'm thinking about getting married or having kids or wanting to climb the corporate ladder or whatever it is. Each of those stages, there's like a new kind of um, step down 
<laughs> in every other generation's sort of estimation of the millennials. And some of it, I wonder if it isn't just its el- itself the media creation of the millennials, that like they were the biggest and the most diverse and they were going to change the world, the next greatest generation, blah, blah, blah. They get all this oxygen. And so they become a big target. And so boomers start out optimistic about them and then get disillusioned. Gen X is annoyed because the millennials are getting attention and the Gen Xers are ignored. You know, the Gen Zers think that millennials are basic. All of what, I agree with all of what you said, though. Like, I think, yeah, they are basic. And I do feel ignored. Same. No, I think that's I think that's pretty right. So when they first start writing about millennials entering the workplace, a lot of the pieces are written yeah. by like HR consultancies and HR, you know, service providers. And they're talking about the multi-generational workplace as if that's a new thing that had never happened before, that people of different ages and life stages working in the same workplace. These millennials are going to need some kind of special knowledge or accommodation in order to be fully worked with, that somehow they were both super ambitious and underskilled. And so you, the boomer boss, were going to have to do something about that and deal with it in some kind of way. And so I do think there's like this kind of, I don't know, sense of a generation, like the narrative really is, it's a whole generation that has been utterly catered to. I go back to the Millennials Rising book and the constant invocation of the babies on board or bang in the car window. And like, how dare you put a sign in your window that says there's an infant in the car. Yeah. Just, they want a firefighter to know that, get this baby out of this seat because they're strapped in pretty tight if we're upside down. Thinking about the the articles about rent and your point, it is about the wage gap. It's about basic mm. demographic math, you know, done by a reporter who's writing one article and not doing a long journalistic exploration of the facts. So they, it's millennials median wages are 36,000 while the annual median right. wage needed to afford a one bedroom is this. This is less than that. Therefore, they can't afford the rent. The other part of the story mm-hmm. is the assumed narrative that millennials have been waiting longer to start families, which is another thing you see headlines about that they're, they're delaying and delaying and delaying. Mm, And nobody mm -hmm. asks the question, like, if that's true. And, you know, I think there is proof that shows they are delaying that. Why are they delaying? You know, what's the story there? And so there's other headlines that go into that cities where millennials are getting married is the is the headline from Yahoo news. Um, And it, it lists, you know, and it has the same kind of, crappy demographic paint by numbers data yeah i mean data is a i guess it is technically data and then but then it's like here's a list of cities there's no analysis for why why yeah or what it means it just is this crazy you know position that's like here's cities where they actually are getting married because they're so weird because they're not getting married you know, there is, there was another article that I'm looking for that said, um, that looked into this. And it, the idea was that millennials were not getting married because they fear the outcome of a divorce. And that was an interesting, like the setback, the financial and the emotional setback of going through a divorce is an expectation they have. There's no data to back it up. But I was like, well, at least that's no. an interesting theory, if I was the child of a baby boomer and we saw huge divorce rates among baby boomer, boomers in the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, that Kramer versus Kramer thing, like maybe that's a real next generation knock-on effect. But the article is also just an avocado toast. It's just, it just throws it out there. Like 
they're not getting married and here's why and there's no doubt this i think goes back though to the question of like how do we frame the windows in which a generation exists yeah. because if it's 20 22 years long the idea of at any given midpoint of of that of that window they should have had a, had all their babies by now they should be married by now they should be doing whatever by now it's a bit like your grandmother going why aren't you married yet when are you getting married and you know like that is it has like even with like the boomers the idea that there was this birth dearth for boomers turns out basically not to be true when they're about the same number of millennials as there were boomers right. so they replaced themselves yeah. like they 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 produced a, the right a number of offspring yeah. right like and and like the, but the difference is like the boomers who are procreating in the 70s and the boomers who are procreating in the 80s are different aged boomers. Yes. <laughs> for, for one thing, yeah. they're just different ages and stages. The same thing is happening with millennials where like some of the millennials who are the, on the older end have accumulated enough you know, enough resources in order to buy homes. And some of them are on the younger end and still trying to figure that out. It's it's like, you can't take 20 years worth of people and say, by this point, they should have completed this task. And if they haven't, there's something wrong with them. I think the thing that's interesting about that, like divorce anxiety narrative is now I'm curious about like, well, when did the wave of divorces crest and then recede because that happened pretty early in the 80s. Yeah. So if you're born after like 85, you have a much greater chance that your parents are still married, yeah. assuming they're both still alive. What are we talking what, what's this sort of general anxiety about divorce? It may just be kind of a cultural thing of like divorce is a possibility. It's not verboten, it's not taboo, so I have to hold out the possibility that that's a thing. It may actually just have to do with like general sense of the precarity of people's finances that any kind of upset to your life can really screw up everything. Yeah. So a health crisis, a failed marriage, a recession, a financial crisis, whatever, all of these things are causing anxiety, but it does feel like I overheard a conversation in a bar and now I'm going to go write a piece about it. That's it. Because the theory is very avocado toasty. It's, it's, as <laughs> yes. I was reading it, I was like, oh, I can really sink my teeth into this idea. They're afraid of divorce. And then I got to the end mm -hmm. of the article and I thought, but there's no substance here. There's no, it's a, it's a, it's thrown out as a, like a, it could be this, mm -hmm. but with a period on it, instead of ellipses, it's, it's, it, it's presented as final as if there's been research. And I, I would love for that research to, I would read a book about this. If, mm -hmm. if someone had done the work. Uh, so I, I, you know, that's an area to keep exploring and seeing if that's something that's true. I'm not so sure that it is. I agree with you that if you break down boomers into the two generations, they probably should be. And you break millennials into the life stages that we should break them into to explore them. You're going to see a whole range of psychometrics yeah. and behavioral and, you know, attitudes towards money that just change naturally as you have children or as you look to buy a home or as you uh, earn educational credentials. Right. Each of those things changes your outlook. Yeah. Well, and we, my, my um, lovely English in-laws are here and we were talking last night about kind of whatever, the royal family and things like that. But, but one of the things that came up in the conversation that I don't even know that I really knew was that something like a third of English men died in the first world war. A third of them. Yeah. So that will have serious knock-on effects for generations. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. And and like one of the knock-on effects is women getting involved in politics. And it's not because there was some sudden wave of feminism. It's that there weren't enough adults. Like you, you needed, if, if your only definition of an adult was that it had to be male, then you didn't have enough adults to govern the country. Right. You didn't have enough adults to make decisions about what we were going to do next. So yeah, I guess we're going to let some women run for office. We're going to appoint some women to some cabinet ministries. We're going to let women do a lot of things. We're going to be just yeah. fine with the queen. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because we have no other choice. And so they're just these things where it's, what is the actual context here? And it's always just sort of reporting without context. It's literally, I overheard a thing. I really felt at the time of the avocado toast thing that like, it was this fad in cities where you would go to a place for breakfast and it wasn't a full brunch, but they wanted something kind of fancy. Avocados were now cheap and plentiful for a period of time. And so avocado toast, that's delicious. Everybody likes avocados. It's healthy, blah, blah, blah. And some reporter notices that everywhere they're going, there's avocado toast on the menu and there didn't used to be. So thought piece. Like, <laughs> you know. I love it. I'm sad that it, you probably just nailed how half of these stories get injected into culture. You know, <laughs> yes, someone sees it, they have enough of a platform. Someone thinks like, oh yeah, that's a, that is an interesting thing mm-hmm. that's now on the menu. I'm going to also write about it, or I'm going to share this on my own huge platform because millennials are annoying. Right. Well, and I think the other thing is people saying um, kind of half-baked, dumb things on the internet is different now. Somebody for New York Magazine writes a thing about the five best places for avocado toast in lower Manhattan and on a freaking Acela <laughs> trip, you know, some member of Congress sees the piece and is like, avocado toast in my day, we didn't, you know, I don't even like avocados. And so then injects <laughs> it into a tweet or an offhand remark in front of the gaggle. And now it's a thing because Marco Rubio thinks that you shouldn't have avocado toast. Right. Well, then, I mean, for, yeah. I don't know what Marco's position on avocado toast is. I bet he eats a lot of it, to be honest. Yeah. He's kind of a millennial, isn't he? <laughs> don't say that out loud. I don't think he's going to, I don't think people want to be called millennials. I think, it, I think it's almost like a slur. I think that's really interesting. That would be interesting. That's the thing I'd like to actually survey some people about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's because that was their preferred term of all the terms. Although when they did those early surveys about what do you want to be called, Echo Boomers, Gen Y, Millennials, whatever, the the most selected answer was none. (laughs) I don't want to be called any of these (laughs) things. But then it was millennial. Millennial was the nicest sounding one. So we've talked a little bit about how they're reflected today. Farah, where do we go from here? because I have been musing on the subject of millennials since 2000, um, is like these stories also get presented as if it was ever thus, right? Like that millennials have always been irresponsible or always been arrested development or always been whatever. They are presented and it's that like, way now. In the, yes, yeah. exactly. But they're like, you know, roll it back five years, roll it back another five years, roll it back another five years. And it's this like, evolving story, but we don't have a kind of collective memory of that. And so it's only whatever the current New York Post headline is. And, um, you know, I was at dinner the other night with some colleagues of mine who are almost all, in fact, all Gen Xers with Gen Z kids. And they're doing the the thing. They're doing the like, Gen Z is going to save us all. (laughs) And of course I got characteristically irritated and was like, not their job. <laughs> and no, they're not. They f- it feels that way right now when they're just heading off to college or whatever for you. And you're feeling really optimistic about them because they're still your sweet children. And then it's going to be like two or three years when they suddenly at the last minute change their major and annoy you because you've sunk out, all this money into their take ad. the job you yeah. didn't think they should take. Yeah. 
Exactly. Like they will inevitably complete the process of individuating from you <laughs> and you will be disappointed. They will break your heart. And it's like, yes. And this is not about generations. This is just about parenting and maturation of children. It is a known psychological thing. And yet we want to call it a generation problem. And it's this like building them up and building them up. And then like, oh God, I'm so disappointed. And so I think the thing I keep thinking about is like, I I was doing similar things of like, well, what are we currently saying about millennials in the workforce or millennials in money um, or millennials in their, you know, kind of attitudes to government and society. And the current story was just every time I'd encounter like a current uh, headline, I was like, well, that's a change, right? Like that was not where we started. You know, the, the, where it's, you know, how it started, how it's going slides are very, very different. And so things like, you know, the, the, the one that someone said, I think my husband sent it to me about, you know, millennials wanting a soft life um, <laughs> was, <laughs> was, was great. Right. And, um, and, and features, features someone who like, you know, was living in New York and working in marketing and advertising. And, and I happened to, I don't know him, but like know of him. And he was doing a lot of like, you know, community building, but in that same kind of hustle culture vein. And like that, that was the big thing, but now it's, now it's the soft life. Now it's, I've saved up a bit of money and I can live somewhere warm and have an Instagrammable lifestyle and, um, and be more deliberate in my choices. And some of that is probably that like, well, he's not in his early twenties anymore. He's in his mid thirties. Now he's got some more resources. He got some more experience and connections and all that. He can make some more choices about how he wants to live his life. But this is like such a difference from, you know, the 2000 view of what millennials were going to be, which was extremely hardworking, always on overachievers. And that like super ambitious, wanting to leapfrog, being impatient, wanting to get promoted really quickly, sleeping with their phones, all of that kind of thing. I, um, I think, and now it's yeah. now it's soft culture and the kids these days, they're so they're so lazy. I think in our next conversation, we're gonna get in the time machine and yeah. go back to see where the articles, where the headlines, where the news started changing mm-hmm. and look at what was it like pre-avocado toast and and where where <laughs> Post. where's the pivot point that get us to millennials can buy houses yeah. but that's killing the economy because they're bad right i mean i think spoiler is the financial crisis but like <laughs> but, but but i do like the idea of the the dividing line for the millennial narrative from going from a more or less optimistic about them to a more or less pessimistic about them outlook is probably avocado toast. I like that as the as the the line in the in the sediment layers where we can say, ah, that's when the that's when the asteroid hit. That's when the media turned on them. You know? Yes. And so yeah, for sure. I think we'll look at when did the media turn, when did the narrative turn, which might not be the same. And what's the outcomes of that? And what are the maybe what are the reasons why? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Until next time. <laughs> keep reading the post <laughs> don't you dare on the next episode of in the demo farah and adam look at the research that measured the outlook of the first class of millennials as high school seniors and what that meant when compared more broadly i'm your robot host eliza please be kind 
In the demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to InTheDemoPodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.